You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. I hope you all are well. Boy, do I have a great one for you this week. As anyone who knows me or listens to this show knows, I am a research geek. I love research, and I get pretty excited when I have researchers on the show. And this week, I have one I've been wanting to talk to for quite a while, Dr. Rebecca Thurston. Dr. Thurston is the past president of the Menopause Society, NAMS at the time, and she has been involved in fascinating menopause research that I've seen her present at the annual meeting for years, and I've been following on all of the channels for a long time. She is one of the investigators involved in SWAN, which is the study of women's health across the nation, an ongoing study funded by the National Institutes of Health, which examines the physical, biological, psychological, and social changes during the menopause transition. She also leads the Ms. Heart and Ms. Brain studies, which look at menopause and the cardiovascular brain connection. And her and her colleagues' work here is so very important as they objectively measure women's vasomotor symptoms, their hot flashes, their night sweats, and establish connections and correlations to heart disease, dementia, and other risk factors for women. It's really, really pivotal research. We cover all of that during this conversation and then some. She is so deep in all of this research. It's amazing. I could have talked to her all day. So I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. I will put a bunch of links to her work in the show notes so you can go in and check it all out further on your own time. Um, Really, really wonderful having a chance to talk to her. Okay, before we get to it, Thank you to everyone who signed up and is participating in our first menopause course called Navigate Menopause. We had nearly 450 women sign up and the energy you all are bringing is humbling and amazing. So thank you. As usual, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Feisty Menopause. You can join our private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group where we have all kinds of conversations 24-7 with almost 30,000 women. Uh, We have a very lively membership called Level Up, where we meet a few times a month and go deep on all things training and menopause. And uh, you can learn about all of these things and sign up for my free weekly blog, soon to be a really kick-ass newsletter at feistymenopause.com. Before I get to it, I want to answer a question that came into our SpeakPipe inbox regarding the use of vaginal estrogen cream. Uh, which we talked about last week with Dr. Rochelle Bernstein to keep those tissues healthy. Um, there was a listener who dropped a message to me who was concerned. She asked if using estrogen cream puts her partner at risk during sex, male partner at risk during sex. And it's a good question. Comes up a lot. Uh, I dug into the research, but then I just found a great blog that Dr. Jen Gunter did at the Vagenda on the topic. And the short answer is the risk is very low. And if you want to really, really, really minimize your risk, uh, risk, apply it well outside of sex. Like don't just put it on and then jump right in the sack. 
And if that does happen, you can just have your partner clean up afterwards and he should be fine. But if you use it as directed with time for absorption, everyone should be fine. I recommend just checking out her Vagenda blog on the topic if you want a deep dive that includes a bunch of research links. And thanks, uh, Dr. Gunter, who has been on the show for all the work you do in this area. All right. Finally, very quick thanks to Prevenex for their ongoing support. I got a super cool review from a user named Melissa, and she said, I started taking Joint Health Plus first, and after years and years of taking glucosamine and MSM, I actually feel a difference with this product. I agree. That happened to me too, Melissa. And now she says she's using the Muscle Health supplement, and it seems to help her recover faster. I agree with that too, Melissa. Uh, she says, being new to this type of supplement, I'm looking forward to seeing how it helps with strength training. I can tell you it helps a lot. So I love both of these products. I really love their new muscle health product. I use it every morning during my lifting sessions. Thanks, Melissa, for your note. And thanks, Prevenex, for your support. And enough of me. Let's have a few words about our awesome sponsors and get on with this show. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, Plus, even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like Feisty Menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Okay, Dr. Thurston, I'm very, very excited that you're here. I've been following your research for years. I've seen you present at the Menopause Society meetings, and I'm thrilled you're here. I respect your time. So let's get right into it. Um, I know that you are very involved in the NIH 
uh, MS Heart, Ms. Heart, is that what you call it? Ms. Heart and Ms. Brain Studies. And I'd love to hear about that and your involvement with SWAN and how all of this massive research projects that you're involved in have come together and how you've become part of that. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I think this is really important work that you're doing. Um, you. And I'm so glad that you're having us scientists and experts uh, to bring the uh, good evidence about menopause to, to the people. So this is really good work. Um, okay, so the SWAN study and Ms. Hart and Ms. Brain studies. So Ms. SWAN study is called the study of women's health across the nation. This is a large, what we call longitudinal cohort study of the menopause transition. So we recruited women in the mid nineties, around 1996, they're between the ages of 42 and 52, all pre or very, very early perimenopausal. So just starting to have menstrual cycle changes. And we followed them for 27 years. And in fact, we just wrapped up our 17th visit with these women and are just cleaning these data right now. And I'm one of the principal investigators of SWAN. It is conducted at seven sites around the United States, and one of the sites is here in Pittsburgh. So, so we just wrapped up that visit. Hopefully, we're crunching the data right now. So SWAN has given us some really basic um, foundational information about the menopause transition. And it's also multi-ethnic. So there's five different racial ethnic groups represented in SWAN, um, as opposed to the the earlier days where all of what we knew was about white women, we have white women, black women, Japanese women, Chinese women, and Latinas in SWAN. So we try to be really understand differences by race, ethnicity. So that's a big study of 3,300 women. Now, the Ms. Hart and Ms. Brain studies, so those are clinical studies we've conducted here in Pittsburgh. Uh, Ms. Hart, I dreamed up uh, myself uh, based upon observations I was making in Swan finding that women who reported more vasomotor symptoms had poor underlying vascular health. We are seeing that in Swan. However, we wanted to do a much deeper dive using objective measures of hot flashes, um, measuring all potential pathways or mechanisms that might explain relationships between hot flashes and cardiovascular disease risk. So that's what Ms. Heart was designed to do. And we had women hooked up to wearable technologies to measure sleep, hot flashes, et cetera. Very intensive protocol, vascular imaging. Um, and then the next iteration of Ms. Hart, we, what I was noticing in the cardiovascular systems, hot flashes in the cardiovascular um, observations, my dear friend and colleague, Pauline Mackey, was seeing similar things in the brain. So Pauline and I teamed up and brought these women, these Ms. Hart women back and conducted the Ms. Brain study that really extends our look at what do hot flashes, what do sleep problems, what do hormones mean for both the cardiovascular system and the brain. And now we're conducting Ms. Brain 2, which is the follow-up to Ms. Brain 1. Um, and in fact, we have a participant in the lab today, um, just down the hall, undergoing the protocol for Ms. Brain 2. So these are all studies designed, SWAN, natural history of menopause transition, Ms. Heart, Ms. Brain, what do the symptoms mean for women's heart health and brain health? That's great. That's And I really enjoyed hearing that the origin story, because I don't think I've heard it put that way. And I appreciate that. So, so following up on that, you know, I've seen you present, and I've seen you present this really great research where you show the women hooked up and, and follow them. And I think I'd love to set the stage because, you know, you've drawing these connections between, you know, the frequency and the persistence and the severity of vasomotor symptoms, like hot flashes and night sweats. But what, 
what is a hot flash? Have we defined, like, really? Do we know exactly what a hot flash is? Like, what is the origin and the mechanisms? The physiology, I think we're much closer. Um, So so obviously the subjective experience of a hot flash is this rush of intense heat accompanied by sweating and flushing. Some women have feelings of anxiety or nausea or other symptoms. Some women have um, an aura before they have their Mm -hmm. hot flashes. Some women have chills um, after their hot flash. So, so um, in my experience, I've had hot flashes um, and I will tell you, it feels like you're on fire from the inside. That's how it feels to me. Um, so I, I, I personally um, have experienced these things that are no fun. Now, the biology of this, we think they originate in the brain um, and in the part of the brain called the hypothalamus. Now, there are neurons called what we call candy neurons in the brain, where we think that these hot flashes are originating from in the hypothalamus. And it really, these neurons are essentially the relay station between our master controller of the reproductive axis, what we call the GnRH pulse generator that controls um, basically a lot of our um, reproductive hormones. And so realization between that part of the brain and the thermoregulatory centers in the brain, which are also housed within the hypothalamus, um, just a different set of neurons. So, and because these hot flashes, these are thermoregulatory events. You feel hot, you're sweating, your body is attempting to dump heat when it's having a hot flash. Um, And another way to think about these hot flashes, so that's kind of the biology of it. Um, And then you get this peripheral vasodilation, um, flushing, but the more is a more conceptual way to talk about it is that it's when you go through menopause, it's like your inner thermostat has gotten a little broken. So your body thinks your core body temperature is too high, even though it's not, and you get this profuse heat dissipation event in the form of a hot flash because your body is trying to get rid of heat. And then sometimes you'll get this overshoot and chills and shivering to follow. And this is all originating in the hypothalamus due to changes we think in circulating um, uh, hormones, most likely estradiol. And that's why fesalinitin works, right? Like that's that's working on those candy receptors that yeah. we can talk that's about later. Works exactly at those candy neurons. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, is there anything mechanistically different between a hot flash and a night sweat, or is a night sweat just a nocturnal hot flash? We well, we don't think they're different, but it's not like we've actually had women in the lab at night trying to see that. So we hook women up to hot flash monitors and they wear these monitors for 24 hours. So we can see what the hot flashes look like when we measure them during the day and during the night. They look pretty similar with the exception that um, sometimes the readings are a little different at night because women are under um, covers and things like that. But, But we think they're the same thing. The only reason I'm being Um, a little bit hesitant about that is because when it comes to the links between the hot flashes and the brain and cognition, they seem to be quite specific to those nocturnal or sleep hot flashes. So I, I, it's still possible. There may be something different about them, but, um, but we think the physiology is the same. Yeah. That's why I asked the question because I've seen you present that research and I want to talk about that in a bit about this, like the specific risks that seem to orbit around the nocturnal yeah. hot flash. Yeah. yeah. But the drug which could be related to sleep, right? I mean, we don't 
No, because we measure sleep too. Oh, that's right. You did. That's and right. You did. Or that our observations around sleep hot flashes in the brain are not explained by sleep itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. As its own separate story, which we should talk about, but we yeah. will. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk first. Let's let's just go through one by one. Then let's talk a bit about those connections that you found um, between the more frequent hot flashes in your forties, your fifties, more persistent maybe over time, and yeah. your your cardiovascular risk. What have you seen there? So these are data from Swan, and one of the things that is great about Swan is that we've measured these women's hot flashes, or we've asked them about their hot flashes for over twenty years. 25 years. So we, we were able to start when women are in their 40s, and now these women are in their 70s. So we're really able to get a huge swath um, of the lifespan, which is allows us to look at what are the different patterns of hot flashes. And there's a couple of things that have really surprised us from SWAN and also some other longitudinal studies is that hot flashes last a lot longer than you previously thought. We used to think they lasted about four to five years. We now know for moderate to severe or frequent hot flashes, they last for seven to 10 years on, on average. So half of women will have them longer than that. Um, and milder symptoms or less frequent symptoms go on for longer. So these are with us for a long time. That surprised us. We also saw that women follow different patterns of hot flashes. Some women have them very early in the transition when they're still menstruating. That's not unusual. If you're having hot flashes in your early 40s, you're still having regular menstrual cycles. Um, those are real. Those are hot flashes. Some women have them only after they've stopped menstruating when they're in the postmenopause. Um, about a lucky few, 25% of women don't really have many at all. They maybe have just a couple right around their final menstrual period. And then we have another quarter of women who have them persistently from the late reproductive years when they're still menstruating or just starting to have menstrual irregularities well into their postmenopause. And we call those women super flashers. So, so you do follow different patterns. And most, many OB-GYNs don't know, many doctors don't know that it is not unusual to have hot flashes when you're in your 60s and beyond. That is a, that is a thing that we are seeing in our big uh, longitudinal studies. So if you're one of those people, um, you're not alone. Okay, so that's the different patterns. Now, when it comes to cardiovascular disease risk, we've seen a couple different things. What we think is it's either on um, these earlier onset vasomotor symptoms that are happening relatively early in the menopause transition and or happening persistently. Oftentimes the women who get them early, they tend to have them longer. So, um, so for example, we looked at in SWAN, um, the risk for heart attacks and strokes over 25 years for women who had hot flashes. And what we found was that the women with the most persistent hot flashes over the course of the transition, these women were at the highest risk for heart attacks and strokes over those 20 some odd years. Some other data that we've looked at have pointed to those earlier onset hot flashes, but, but probably it's those real persistent hot flashers who start early and keep going. Do we know why? I mean, do we, do we think that it's, it's that, that, they, that some women are more exquisitely sensitive to their hormone fluctuations and that's what's causing this? Or do we... Do why we have would it longer? Well, all of it. Like why? Because there definitely seems to be this connection that you're finding, right? Between yeah. this persistent and this severe and frequent... But do we know like why that's then connected to the cardiovascular disease risk? I mean, is it related to how they re react to the estradiol leaving the building? 
So that was what we were trying to answer in Ms. Hart, um, in part, was what are the mechanisms that explain these relationships between hot flashes and cardiovascular disease risk? And the hormones did not seem to be the story. And we really measured these hormones well. We use these super fancy measures um, of estrogens called mass spectrometry that get at the very, very low levels that many of our um, postmenopausal women have. We looked at two different estrogens in the body, not just the estradiol, which we talk about a lot, but also estrone. We looked at follicle-stimulating hormone. We looked at testosterone. We looked at the proteins that bind the estrogens. We really looked hard. The hormones were not the story. Um, so at least levels of hormones and changes mm. in hormones. So, so that was really kind of interesting. Um, we looked at inflammatory markers. Is it about circulating inflammation? We did not see that to be explanatory. We even looked at how your body, um, your blood clotted to see if that explained the association that did not explain things. We looked at obesity. We looked at, um, cholesterol. We looked at insulin resistance and diabetes risk. Uh, we looked at endothelial dysfunction. So how is the functioning of the inner layer of your lining? That, I will say, out of all the things we looked at, we did we do see changes in the vascular endothelium among women with vasomotor symptoms. So even if you don't have heart disease yet, that happens when women are 65 plus. When we look at these very fine aspects of how the vasculature is functioning, how well does it dilate um, in response to certain stimuli that should cause it to dilate. Those women who have hot flashes, the vasomotor functioning of their vessels is altered. Um, but again, the why of that, we're still trying to figure out. We looked at epigenetics, we looked at epigenetic aging, um, and we've also looked at the autonomic nervous system. The other thing that has emerged is that women, uh, during a hot flash, you have changes in the way that your nervous system is functioning. So your nervous system essentially has a break and it has an accelerator. So your fight or flight, and then you have your rest and digest or your break. That's that vagal influence. And what we find during the hot flash is that break or that vagal influence over the heart, um, is acutely decreased um, during the hot flash. So we do see, and that's usually a negative thing from a cardiovascular perspective. So we have a couple of cues, uh, clues. We know that the vascular endothelium is important. We know that the autonomic nervous system is probably important, but we're still trying to put all the pieces together. And that's why everyone's cold plunging. <laughs> like I just, you know, to, because of the, the vagus nerve and the autonomic nervous system. Right. Maybe, yeah. I mean, who knows what that does. I, know. I mean, the cold may feel good. Um, I also think the data around its cardio protection is a little bit mixed, but, um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever makes you feel good is first what I would say. So Ms. Ms. Hart also found, correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, um, that more hot flashes were associated with C-reactive protein, weren't correct? Uh, yes, yes, okay. we are finding that. I'm trying to think about, did we actually publish those data yet? So I think oh. my, my graduate student is working on that and she... <laughs> She's, she's presented at a um, conference about that. That's we, where I found it. Okay. Yeah, we do see some changes in inflammatory markers. They're pretty subtle, um, and they don't seem to explain the links between the vasomotor okay. symptoms and the cardiovascular disease risk. So in SWAN, we also looked at the relationships between the vasomotor symptoms and the inflammatory markers, um, and we did not see a strong signal there. So I would say the data are mixed on inflammation. Okay. Yeah. So then the million-dollar question everybody wants to know, like, so, hey, let me, before I ask that, what scale are you using? Because I mean, I, this feels very, when you hear it, it's, it feels very subjective. Like, 
are are mine severe? I don't know. Do I have them frequently? You know, I mean, those are very subjective things, I think, to most yeah. people's ears. So yeah. like what scale can we actually look at to see like, oh, okay, I am having a lot of hot flashes. It's not right. just. Well, I'm glad you asked that because I get very deep in the weeds around the measurement of hot flashes. So I will attempt to not bore you. Um, <laughs> no, why, nobody bores me. Why we pivoted from SWAN to Ms. Hart. So SWAN is what we call an epidemiologic cohort study. And in these studies, you can measure a large number of women over long periods of time. What you sacrifice in those kind of studies is a lot of in-depth measurements or really precise measurements. So in SWAN, what we did um, is we gave them a questionnaire and we said, how often are you having hot flashes in the past two weeks? And women um, say uh, none, one to five days, um, five to seven days every day, that kind of thing. And we also then asked how many do you have on those days and how frequent or how bothersome are they? That's what we did in SWAN. Now, the reason why we set up Ms. Hart was not only to try to understand the mechanisms that may link hot flashes to cardiovascular disease risk, but we wanted to do a better job at measuring hot flashes. And so that's why we pivoted to a clinical study, which is about 300 women, and we hooked women up to hot flash monitors. So we're not ask, we're asking women to carry diaries and tell us when they're having hot flashes, but we're also measuring them objectively. They don't have to report to us at all. So we're not relying upon that subjective self-report. I think the subjective report is useful, but we know that the subjective reporting of any symptom is very influenced by how you're feeling that day, how you remember your symptoms, especially if you're trying to recall them over time, um, how tired you are. Um, I know when I'm feeling particularly cranky, I'm going to look back over my day and see it more negatively. So that's a phenomenon we know is true in general with symptom reporting. So we like to measure these hot flashes objectively as well to kind of have both, to have the subjective experience as well as the objective currents. We also do this because at night, it's very hard for people to report their hot flashes. They're sleeping or at least attempting to sleep. And so those self-reports of hot flashes overnight tend to be sort of contaminated by the quality of sleep you're having. If you're waking up a lot during the night, you're going to remember those hot flashes a lot more the next morning when I ask you about it. So, so that's a couple of the reasons we measure the hot flashes, both objectively with our monitors and subjectively. And we have found um, in Ms. Hart that those objectively monitored hot flashes are associated with elevated vascular risk when we measure and, and look at women's vessels. Um, they, their vessels look more diseased than the women without the vasomotor symptoms, particularly if they're having a lot of them. Um, and we also, when it comes to the brain and our findings in the brain, it's only those objectively measured hot flashes, particularly overnight, that are linked to our measures of cerebrovascular health. So when we look at the vasculature in the brain, as well as, uh, and that's our work, and then Pauline Mackey's work has shown that these nighttime hot flashes are objectively measured are linked to poor memory performance. So if we're seeing these parallels between the heart and the brain, and we've been measuring the hot flashes in all the ways, the questionnaires, the diaries, the objective measures. So we really care about how we're doing it. Um, and we've shown, we've shown a lot of these findings, particularly cardiovascular findings. It doesn't matter how you measure them. You see that signal there. So what is the scale? Like, is there a scale of like one to five a day is mild? No, like, is there a scale? Is there an actual scale that people can? Oh, what counts is mild? Yeah. 
here. Um, well, there, people do this a couple different ways. So when we ask women, um, we we are asking in a diary how severe do you rate it every hot flash. So every time a woman has a hot flash, we have them fill out a diary entry on an, on like a hand on your phone essentially. Give us on a one to five scale how bad is it. We let women define. Now with FDA studies. Uh, for example, when we measure new drugs for hot flashes, we measure severity as well. Um, and the FDA has a definition for what is moderate and what is a severe hot flash. And I can't remember the specifics of it, but it has to do with how much does it make you stop your activities? Yeah, I've seen that. If you're having a severe hot flashes, you have to stop, you have to stop what you're doing, take off some layers, do some sort of mitigation kind of activity. Uh, whereas when it's mild, you can sort of sail through it and keep going, that kind of thing. So some people try to attempt to standardize what mild, moderate and severe is. Um, in different studies. So different studies kind of do it different ways. Gotcha. Yeah. So so talking a bit more about the nocturnal ones that you referenced there and- Oh, um, and I, sorry, one thing about frequency. Yeah, go frequency ahead. Just the number. And it's the more you have, the more frequent it is. There's not something like, like 10 or more is uh, frequent, right? It can be, and also because when we measure these hot flashes objectively, women are having way more than they tell us. So when they- us a diary and they we say how many are you having as you go about your day we probably report about half maybe 60 percent of what we see on the monitor so in general women are having more than they're than they're telling us that's interesting that's yeah. really interesting not yeah. really surprising really interesting right um, we just kind of keep moving and keep going right? <laughs> exactly yeah. just have to get through your day exactly. um so the nocturnal ones i there was a connection with the white matter hypertensity. Is, is that is that cerebral vascularly oriented? Yeah. So white matter hypertensity is when you look at an MRI scan in the brain, you basically see these white dots on the brain. And those are indicators of what we call small vessel disease in the brain. So your brain has a whole vasculature in it, like the rest of our body does. Um, and this is looking at whether we're seeing evidence of damage to those vessels in the brain. And we saw that the women with more objectively measured hot flashes at night, those women had more of these white matter hypertensions in the brain. It was not explained by hormones. It was not explained by sleep. You also measured the beta amyloid 42-20 ratio, correct? Yes, yes. Um, A beta 42-40. And lower levels here are worse. They're indicators of more circulating amyloid. Um, and what amyloid is, is it's part of what we consider the sort of pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and it's one of these things that starts slow and, you know, accumulates over decades of life. And we saw some evidence that women, again, with these sleep hot flashes, had more uh, evidence of circulating amyloid in the blood. So now I'm moving on to my million dollar question, is that if we if we take measures to treat these these vasomotor symptoms, either hormonally or with the new lines of candy, you know, neuron drugs like bezolinotent and the others that are coming down the pipeline. Does this make a difference in what we're seeing with these connections between heart and brain health? The bottom line is we don't know. We don't know. We have to do those studies. And uh, I'm, I'm, I would like to be doing those studies. So that's just a matter of getting those studies up and running, getting funding to do them, et cetera. We don't know at this point. Um, there is a tiny signal out of one study that used a non-hormonal intervention 
for vasomotor symptoms, which is called stellate ganglion block. Um, mm. This is Pauline Mackey's work showing that women who um, had a greater response to the stellate ganglion block intervention, so the more hot flashes that decreased, the more the hot flashes decreased, the better their memory um, improved. So there's some little bit of a signal there. Uh, however, we need way more data, way more data. And along those lines, and I, I have to ask, I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of chatter around hormone therapy right now as a protective element, you know, for heart disease and, and brain diseases. And a lot of it bounces back to this research, you know, people connecting their own dots. Do you have anything to say on that? And hormone therapy. I mean, really the bottom line on hormone therapy is that it's good for symptom management. That's pretty much what we use it for, is to treat the hot flashes, also topically to treat urogenital symptoms, vaginal dryness, that kind of thing. Those it's really good for. However, in terms of cardiovascular risk reduction um, or uh, protection of brain health, we just, the data from our randomized controlled trials do not support that. It really, right now, the recommendations are hormone therapy um, should be used to treat the vasomotor symptoms, not as a primary prevention of heart disease or, or dementia. We went through this in the 90s. I mean, we used to think that hormone therapy was good for all the ALG. Um, and then uh, we did our RCTs and we were or randomized controlled trials. We were very surprised that things did not work out uh, to show that benefit. In fact, showed some increased risk, particularly for older women, um, for both heart and brain. And um, now I see the pendulum starting to swing back where we really want to believe that hormone therapy is going to uh, really fully protect us. And uh, the data just do not support that as much as it would be lovely if that were true. Um, and there is some risk that you need to take into account, whether it's um, breast uh, kind of risk and um, endometrial risk that you need to pair it with a progesterone. So, so there's some real subtleties around hormone therapy um, that it's really important if you're considering hormone therapy that you talk to your medical provider. And if you use hormone therapy, you use FDA approved and regulated formulations. Don't try to go this alone. Um, and uh, be careful, you know, beware of, um, going into realms that are not supporting FDA approved uh, treatments. So it's complicated. I'll just say it's complicated. It needs to be really individualized, but not, it's not what we re recommend for first line protection of heart and brain. And to end this on a, and I, I think an important note that all that said, and thank you, do not suffer through symptoms. Like right. if you, right, like that is also. <laughs> I mean, we, if you are absolutely, if you're having lots of hot flashes, they're really getting in the way of your life. Um, you're waking up during the night, you're miserable. Absolutely do not suffer with this. There are treatments. Hormone therapy is one. It's a great one. Um, I, I'm, you know, I think it's like any other drug. It's useful for some things. It's not for everything. Um, but there's other treatments as well that you can try that if hormones are not right for you, if you don't want to, um, and we have new agents that are coming out like Fesalimtan or others that may be coming down the pike. So, so don't suffer and seek out help. And if you are not getting help from your medical provider, 
you can find a menopause certified provider on the Menopause Society website, people who have undergone um, specific training in menopause care. What I will say that's really important for people to keep in mind is that we as a whole in our medical schools and in our residencies when we're training doctors have not done a great job at training people in menopause care. So you will encounter many uh, doctors or nurses or other healthcare providers who don't know a lot about menopause care. If that's the case, um, please seek out somebody who has the appropriate training. We are out there. We hear it all the time. I can't tell you how, I mean, it, yeah. you know, I had on Dr. Stephanie Fabian and, and she talked a lot about that. Like the real, real need is to get general practitioners, you know, sort of up to speed and it's going to be a while. Even our gynecologist, yeah. we've been pulling this out of our residency curriculum. And part of it, honestly, is because menopause care doesn't make a lot of money. Um, sadly, it's kind of tied to the finances of um, of the way the healthcare system works. But but be persistent and find somebody who's qualified. The resources are out there. I think the Menopause Society is great. They do a great job in terms of training people, and they have ongoing certification. And that's one way to go. Great. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Let's move on. I know you have a study hot off the press on sleep. And since we're talking about like how this disrupts sleep, um, even though like you found that irrespective of sleep, there also seems to be short sleep has its own set of risks, correct? Right. So this is a paper that literally came out, um, you know, it's out in the February issue of Circulation, which is one of our big cardiology journals, the Go Red for Women uh, issue, which is all about okay. women's health. And what we found, this is SWAN data. So what we looked at is women's reports of insomnia symptoms. So waking up um, earlier than you wanted, trouble falling asleep, or waking up during the night, that one being a real menopause uh, <laughs> characteristics, that nighttime awakening at three or four in the morning. We looked at people telling us about those symptoms. We also looked at how much sleep women reported they typically got. And we looked at that over the course of these 25 years of follow-up from SWAN. And we characterized women into one of four groups. We found that women tended to either 
um, for the insomnia symptoms, have them um, early, have them late in the menopause transition, not have many at all, or we had, a, we had women who had them persistently the entire time. And what we found was that women who had persistent insomnia symptoms had a 70% increased risk of heart attacks and strokes over uh, those 20 year period. And this was after we adjusted for things like obesity, smoking, wow. blood pressure, diabetes risk. It was not explained by depression. It was not explained by hot flashes. So this is independent of the hot flashes. Many women will have sleep problems during midlife without having hot flashes. Um, and it, it is no fun, I will tell you. That is, it is a real problem. And we do see that this is not a symptom you should ignore. We also found that there is a subset of women who are getting very short sleep. They are probably getting less than five hours a night of sleep persistently um, oh. over that 20 year period. Those women were also at increased risk and when you put the short sleep and the insomnia symptoms together, those women had a 75% increased risk of heart attacks and strokes. So that is all to say sleep is really important for your health um, and it's not something to ignore. Yeah, and, and that comes, I mean, do you have suggestions for, because I, I know women in my community who really struggle with this, you know, and I've had on sleep scientists and sleep experts and sleep apnea flies under the radar with a lot of these women too. Um, is there a, does the menopause society, I guess, have a party line there? Do they have a? Yeah. I mean, I will tell you what the sleep society. I mean, we all, yeah, there's a lot of data on sleep and there's a lot of experts um, looking at sleep in general and then a fewer, but some of us looking at sleep during the menopause transition. And I'll just to touch upon sleep apnea. Um, in this study, we controlled for symptoms of sleep apnea. So we could say it wasn't about sleep apnea, but sleep apnea is really important. So sleep apnea is sleep disorder breathing. So people who uh, basically stop breathing during the night. And one of the, the cardinal symptoms of this is snoring. Um, and it oftentimes is accompanied by weight gain. So if you've had a period of weight gain, many of us do during midlife. Um, and we do think that the upper airway probably changes during menopause as well, which predisposes people um, to sleep apnea. So, so sleep apnea, I think, is probably something that goes really, as you say, flies under the radar, where we start to develop these symptoms during midlife, either because we've gained weight or our upper airway has changed um, and we're snoring more. And this is a huge risk factor for both cardiovascular disease and poor brain health. Again, absolutely need to get that treated. If you're having, get it worked up, you need to have a sleep study and then get your sleep apnea treated, which is typically a CPAP. Um, don't ignore that. I also see people clinically for depression uh, and anxiety. And when I, if they have symptoms of sleep apnea, I cannot treat their depression until they get that sleep apnea treated. It is a huge thing when it comes to mental health as well. So, um, I, you know, and I've seen people's depression resolve when they got their sleep apnea treated. So that is really a huge thing. However, the issue with insomnia and that waking up during the night or trouble falling away, falling asleep, that is separate from insomnia, from sleep apnea. And it's a separate kind of sleep issue. And it also is independently associated with cardiovascular disease risk uh, that is important to get treated. Now, the, our best treatments for uh, insomnia is something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So CBTI. Yep. And I've done shows on that. It's, it's really good. And there's some, there's a fair, there's about three or four studies to show really good randomized trials to show that it is effective in treating perimenopausal sleep disturbance, even if you have hot flashes. And that is a non-drug approach that is, I mean, it's not easy to do. 
you need to have some discipline and some stick to it, stick to it, um, go through a period of maybe some discomfort in terms of where your sleep gets a little bit short or restricted while you're trying to get your sleep back on track. Essentially, you need to establish really a good sleep routine, a good sleep rhythm, and your body needs to get trained up to be able to sleep regularly. And it takes some doing, but it's worth it. It's a non-drug approach. So it's, it's really two thumbs up. I would start there uh, for most people, but if that is not going to work for you, we can't do it for whatever reason. There's many apps out there about CBTI that I'd recommend. Um, You can also try some pharmacologic approaches under the supervision of your doctor. Excellent. Yeah. And I'll drop those in the show notes because I have done a few studies on that. And I, I mean, the, the evidence is really strong for it. So yeah, it's yeah. great. Also, a shortened version is called BBTI. Uh, that is a brief behavioral treatment for insomnia that does go into the cognitive side of it, but it really is getting you on a regular sleep schedule. You get all of the uh, phones and TVs and devices out of the bedroom. It kind of teaches you from purely behavior, not even getting into head and thinking about your thoughts or dealing with thoughts of how do you train your body to sleep again. That's a shorter version. That's also quite useful. If you happen to run across that, um, that's a good one too. Yeah, that's excellent. And, and so much of this, I mean, it comes back. I mean, I just echoes in my mind about the what you said about the break and the accelerator, the autonomic nervous system. I mean, I know a lot of women, I went through a period of this just waking up in panics at, for no reason at two in the morning. It's very interesting. And I do think we really need to understand this for when it comes to the menopause transition. What exactly is going on with the brain and the nervous system that gets a little bit uh, altered, potentially a little out of whack uh, during the menopause transition? And for many people, this will normalize. Yeah, Um, now I sleep like a rock. I mean, it's great. (laughs) Actually, very few people can say that that I see. Um, But I, I think, yeah. That's that's fabulous. But sometimes it's hopefully time delimited, but still it's not worth suffering through it because sleep loss is really brutal for both mental health and physical health. hundred percent. So I, I also, while we're talking about your vast body of research, I know you do work in trauma and, you know, sexual violence history. And I, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about that arm of your research too, because it's so important. I've done entire shows on adverse childhood experiences and trauma and how that all shows up in such a... T- pronounced way in menopause. Yeah. And, you know, this just emerged from our study. So, for example, the Ms. Hart study, we were looking at what were the prime predictors of women's poor cardiovascular health? Like what what predicted? And we expected things like blood pressure and cholesterol and exercise. It, It wasn't even those things. It was hot flashes, sleep and trauma. It just emerged again and again. And either childhood abuse or adult trauma experiences, both of these predicted poor vascular health when we image women's vasculature. So they showed signs of underlying atherosclerosis, so stiffening and hardening of the vessels and developing of these plaques in the vessels, um, as well as poor endothelial function, which is another aspect of um, vascular health. These women, people who had the more traumatic experiences you had, um, the poorer your vascular health. And there seemed to be a specific signal for sexual trauma. So childhood sexual abuse or adult sexual assault, which was our most common 
uh, sexual trauma in adult or trauma exposure in adulthood, when we gave them a checklist of about nine different trauma experiences, sexual assault was the most common one. About a third of women will experience uh, sexual assault. We found that these women had a fourfold odds of having um, underlying plaques in their vessels. We also found that women with a history of workplace sexual harassment had a doubling of the odds of hypertension, which, you know, workplace sexual harassment, unfortunately, is really common. So these traumatic experiences are really important. We also found that the uh, sexual violence history was associated with more white matter hyperintensities in the brain. Um, and when it, we also found that the nervous system was altered. So when we're measuring women's autonomic nervous system over 24 hours, we found that women with more traumatic experiences, particularly either childhood or adulthood, the more you had, um, the more that your nervous system sort of stayed on at night. We're like, we're really supposed to have this vagal predominance at night, have our nervous system unwind while we sleep, and then come back online during the day. And what we kind of found is it just stayed on, which is this experience, I think, of hypervigilance, um, of uh, difficulty under unwinding, letting go, feeling safe in the world. We saw evidence of that in these women's nervous systems, which we think is important to the pathophysiology of this vascular risk that we're also seeing. Now, one of the things that was a little bit of an optimistic note is that either when we looked at the links between childhood abuse and vascular risk or adult trauma exposure and vascular risk, if women were sleeping adequately, so they were sleeping at least six hours a night, objectively measured sleep, those women's vessels looked like the non-traumatized women. So sleep was kind of a buffer. So if you can get yourself sleeping, that may be a way that you're not just sort of consigned to adverse cardiovascular health if you've been unlucky enough to have a trauma experience in your life, a really bad one. And that's unfortunately very common. There are ways to potentially mitigate that risk um, because we don't want women to feel like they're doomed. There's, there's ways, but be on top of it. If you've had a lot of trauma in your life, be on top of your cardiovascular health. Also, don't be surprised if you have a lot of hot flashes. We also found that these women with um, particularly childhood abuse experiences had uh, more hot flashes as well. Yeah. And, and is there a, like, there seems to be a hormonal component here. Is, is it, does all this sort of rear up more during the menopause transition because our, we have a lower level of hormones that generally regulate some of these when we're talking about our nervous system? Maybe. I mean, I see the menopause transition as really this time of widespread biological change. And the hormonal changes are one of the changes that are happening. Mm -hmm. But it's also, we're having changes in the nervous system, we're having changes in uh, the cardiovascular system, we're having changes in our bone and body composition, we're having changes in our brains. It's not exclusively about hormones. Some of it's about hormones, but not the whole thing. It's a time of really like kind of a biological rearrangement, and but it also could be a time of real vulnerability, um, where you start to see those early risks kind of come home to roost um, during this time when we're a bit compromised, um, potentially biologically as it is, where we start to see the effects of those early exposures. That's how I think about it. And we were partly protected because of our hormones, but also, you know, kind of snowballs. If you're not sleeping, that has this independent effect on the vasculature in the brain, for example, that may make you more vulnerable to the trauma, those trauma experiences. Let's let's bring this up and talk about what's good <laughs> about all this because I've 
I feel in many ways, um, not necessarily, you know, having been a lifelong athlete and many of my, my listeners are, um, not necessarily as physically strong. I don't necessarily climb a hill as fast as I did, but I feel really rock solid in many ways that I can't say that I've ever felt before in my life. (laughs) And so this is kind of what I've been trying to figure out how to get my hands around my research now is that because I see this clinically all the time. So I do see um, women for therapy. Uh, I am a menopause therapist. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I'm a therapist. I'm a psychologist. I do see people for depression, anxiety, life, you know, changes, transitions, um, trying to get through the mental health parts of the menopause transition. All, all the things at midlife. So, and what I see uh, in my patients, in myself, in my colleagues, in my friends who are in this age bracket is that there's this sort of increased self-confidence. Um, you care a little bit less about what people think about you. Um, you kind of know that you can shed off some of those gendered expectations, perhaps, about what you should look like, what you should act like. So I do see a bit more groundedness, despite these biological changes that are going on that can be really challenging. There's also kind of an increasing mental strength and um, self-awareness and self-confidence that I also, also see. So I think midlife is actually an amazing time time um, for women and uh, personal growth and psychological growth that we, uh, I, I would like to amplify and just support people that you, it doesn't need to be all bad. It really uh, can be a time of tremendous growth. And we do see people uh, in our studies who say, you know, would you want to go back to being in your 20s or 30s? People, women are like, no, no, no. I feel so much more myself and so much more able to be myself. And that is something to really embrace and celebrate. Mic drop. <laughs> that's that's a great place to leave it. Thank you. I really, really appreciate your, your work. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you for being My here. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for your attention to this topic. Well, that is our show. Come on back next week for a long-awaited show on what the hell happens to our cholesterol levels during menopause. I sat down with Dr. Samia Mora, who is a cardiovascular medicine specialist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and there she is also the director of the Center for Lipid Metabol. <laughs> I don't even know if I can say this. <laughs> As director of the Center for Lipid Metabolomics. I am going to go with that. Um, she knows a lot about lipid levels in midlife. Let's just put it that way. We did a deep dive. She's, this is her life's work. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause. And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty.